Welcome to Spark Your Fire podcast. Content discussed on this podcast is general in nature. Please seek specific advice from qualified professionals. Now, let's start with the quote of the week. Now, when I was 15 years old, I had a very important person in my life come to me and say, who's your hero? And I said, I'm not going to think about that. Give me a couple of weeks. I come back two weeks later. This person comes up and says, who's your hero? I said, I thought about it. You know who it is? I said, it's me in 10 years. So I turned 25. 10 years later, that same person comes to me and goes, so are you a hero? And I was like, not even close. No, no, no. She said, why? I said, because my hero is me at 35. So you see, every day, every week, every month, and every year of my life, my hero is always 10 years away. I'm never going to be my hero. I'm not going to attain that. I know I'm not. And that's just fine with me because that keeps me with somebody to keep on chasing. So to any of us, whatever those things are, whatever it is we look up to, whatever it is we look forward to, and whoever it is we're chasing, to that I say amen. To that I say all right, all right, all right. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another Friday wrap with Spark Your Fire team here. Um, Again, very excited. Another week of assets fluctuations across the world um you know we live in 2021 what a magical time to be here (laughs) observing from the downturns of COVID-19 which only happened to be about a year ago now and uh look at how strong we have bounced back since then and how much money that's floating around the market so you know don't you don't you guys think Jazz and John hey good David good to be back here interesting times of course there's uh, always something in the market, especially what we're about to discuss today. But before we jump into anything, let's welcome John as well, I guess. <laughs> yeah, like those, totally. People come for the macroeconomics, but they stay for the conspiracy theories. <laughs> <laughs> He's got that part right. He's got that part right, the conspiracy specialist in our team. <laughs> <laughs> must be Friday, must be Friday. Good to see you. Happy guys. Friday, boys. Happy Friday. You haven't even had your drinks yet, John, and you already started. <laughs> you already kicked off with this part. God. <laughs> anyway, back to some topics this week, gents. Um, one of the major news this week is about uh, actually a lot of news talks about counterparty risk. Um, and I think it's actually a good point for us to raise at this at this level in time as well. Um, and I know Jazz, you've, um, you've you've discussed it in the previous uh, in a previous few previous episodes, actually. So, um, how about we get you the lead in uh, in terms of a few news headlines that uh, that alerts our investors about counterparty risk? Mm-hmm. So the news is not confirmed by uh, some of the gold and silver or the commodities bullion dealers out there. But if it is true, then it, what is what it's talking about is the counterparty risk, where essentially you're holding your precious metals, whether it's gold or silver, with one of these bullion companies. And uh, um, since you are paying for the storage with them, they are storing your uh, precious metals. I think the news this week has been is where clients have actually tried to get their precious metals delivered to them uh, and uh, they have been asked to wait for a period of time before it can be delivered and possible reason for the wait is that they don't have actual uh, bullions or the bars in stock whereas when you are paying for the storage with these bullion companies essentially then they are holding your stock, which shouldn't be circulating in the market or it's not a fractional reserve system that they should be running. But it looks like 
in a way that it's a fractional reserve reserve system that they are running where um, even though you're paying for the storage, they're not actually holding onto the bars. Uh, John, am I getting that right? Is This is how I understood it. That, that's the uh, that's what the suspicion is. We've just got to be careful here because we don't really know. It's just what we're hearing. But um, uh, the, the background to that is when the silver squeeze happened at the end of January, uh, a, lot, a lot of people went out and bought a bunch of uh, precious metals and the metals dealerships around the world essentially ran out of metal and yet the prices continue to go down. So there's a lot of suspicion as to why that would be the case. If something becomes more scarce and you can't get it, um, obviously the prices tend to go up. And if you call up the, you know, the, the big name uh, precious metals uh, kind of dealers, uh, they can't get it to you. Now, in some instances, it's a problem because there are two kinds of ways to hold gold. One is in an unallocated pool, which is where you kind of own it like a uh, like a share, and you don't own any particular share, but you own it in a pool. And then there's the way where you own it as an allocated holding, where it's like it's your gold. Um, now you pay storage if you own it on allocation, so it should be there for you to pick up or to take delivery. And if it's not there, that's a problem. But I think. If it's not there, I think with the the word "if" underlined, it's, it's we just don't. I just don't know. So I, I assume it's there. It's all insured, but you never know. Either way, people are paying storage for it. That's the thing. Right? So yeah. The point I think is that it's a it's a counterparty risk that has been discussed somewhere in the past on the podcast. That if you're storing your metals, whether it's gold or silver, whatever it is. With a, with a third party, then there's always going to be a counterparty risk. I guess for our listening to get into commodity at this point in time and knowing that there's this risk, is there any way to mitigate against it? Um, the things you can do, I mean, I mean, a lot of people say that if you uh, don't hold it in your hands, you don't own it. Uh, that's that's one way to, to, to do it, although I suspect that having it in your house is probably a bad idea. Um, I, and I, I think Jazz would probably say that the solution is Bitcoin, that Bitcoin's a more robust uh, ownership structure, so may, and maybe that's true. Um, I, I won't say whether crypto or Bitcoin is the solution to that. What I will say is that if you're holding on to gold or silver, then it's best to either self-custody or hold in a private vault kind of thing. Even then, there's a bit of a risk when you're holding in a private vault. Uh, but if it's probably spread your eggs, depending on how much you're holding on to. I think is the important point. But if uh, if you were looking at alternate asset class, then obviously likes of Bitcoin or crypto, then uh, then make sure that you're holding keys in your hand, uh, not your keys, not your coins, not your vault, not your gold, essentially. Yeah. So uh, I don't think Bitcoin is the alternative to that. Um, I think they do two different asset classes. It's just how you protect it becomes the question. One is easier because it's digital and there's no carry cost. The other one has a carry cost and a counterparty risk. How, how do you, as an investor, avoid that counterparty risk? That comes down to how much quantity you're holding and uh, self-custody is always a solution. It's painful, but that is that is the only solution I can think of. Even if you're holding in a private vault, if all of it is in, a, in one private vault, and again, there's a counterparty risk over there too, right? So that comes down to what sort of quantity you're holding on to.
diversify against multiple private vaults, <laughs> basically. Exactly. So it, it, it comes down to what percentage of your worth, net worth is in it and uh, how much risk can you afford, so, I guess. Uh, I think that the point is that we had a, you know, the, the Bitcoin versus gold debate and one of the things that I was saying is that gold has no counterparty risk and I was saying that gold and, Bit- and Bitcoin neither have counterparty risk. However, there is an element of trust on the gold side that the, the guys who are storing it are doing it ethically and, 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 and openly and so on. So it's not not about picking on any one dealer. It's just about saying that um, whenever you're asking someone else to store something for you, that is counterparty risk. Mm. Mm-hmm. And there's no easy way to mitigate it apart from self-custody, obviously. Yeah. Uh, then. If it's not in your hands, it's not in your hands, isn't it? There's always a risk in terms of paying it, someone else. Put it this way: it's no different to when you deposit your money in the bank, right? So it's a it's a IOU that bank essentially gives you, right? So you deposit your money in the bank. Let's say if it's three hundred k, and you walked into bank tomorrow, one of the branches, and asked that you want if you if you wanted money, your money there and then, uh, they won't be able to give it to you. There's a wait time there, right? So whatever that wait time is. Uh, but at least what you know is that it's FDIC insured up to a certain uh, amount, which I think is about 250K. 250, yeah. Right, so um, with gold, it's, um, it's, it's no different. Um, it's again, what percentage of your net worth is in it? Uh, but there is a counterparty risk and that has been highlighted this week in social media big time. I think it's and I think it's worthwhile to to obviously mention it and raise it, uh, you know, on a regular basis because there's always, as you said, there's always going to be risk and you know for I guess investors who's more focused on, you know, accumulating assets in a current environment, um, thinking about which type of assets is going to be the best for them, um, it can be easily overlooked from a counterparty risk perspective. So good good to be able to come back to to this point I guess and just making people aware of. Mm-hmm. On that note, so hmm, anything else to add, Jens? The only thing is that didn't the Perth Mint take some of their products down off the website? Um, the, the yes. Jazz, I think you, you picked that up. So that was interesting too. So, I mean, Liz, that's a, that's a genuine way to say we're out of stock. I, I mean, I've tried to buy silver before over the phone and they said, look, we're out of that product. So it's, it's okay to be out of a product um, and maybe they're, it's just very tight. So I think this is all going back to what John said before, the silver squeeze story, hashtag silver squeeze. Um, Somewhere the story of the counterparty risk where some of the customers had to wait to get their uh, precious metals released uh, plays into that story as well. So, yeah. But tight market. It's and it's very strange that metals are going down. But that but that part has got nothing to do with the tight market. The fact is, if you have been allocated a pool, once you have been allocated, you've made your purchase and it's been stored in the storage, it's yours. It should be there. Yep. So if That's it's the expectation, there, yeah, then there's a then there's a problem. Let's assume it is until we know otherwise. Yep. It's just interesting. interesting. Mm. Fair enough. All right. Good. Okay, so that's uh, that's an important thing for investors to factor in as well. Making your investments uh, in, uh, I guess, in the digital and, and in the modern days today. Um, okay, so where we go from here now? Actually, another big piece of news this week is about is actually on New Zealand. 
um, in terms of the property side of things, actually, we've seen there's actually there are actually two articles on New Zealand property news this week, which relates to taxing investors uh, or essentially removing the the negative gearing equivalent um, of um, uh, here um, for New Zealand, for property investors and. It's all to do with trying to get that property market under control because I think, Jazz, correct me if I'm wrong, I think there's about 40% of investors' activities at the moment and that's skyrocketing New Zealand house prices and causing an affordability crisis kind of to a level. So the the figure, David, is 40% of the transactions that happened in the final quarter of 2020 were investors' Which okay. is a pretty big number. Final quarter. Okay, so last quarter, basically, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So in other words, forty percent of all that transactions is investor base, and that's that's a huge. That is a huge portion, and no wonder, no wonder what uh, Jacinta Arden at the moment try to do is try to get that uh, prices down. But that raises an interesting question because, you know, could could Australia be following that path when? property investors, and we have seen this in the past, even though it's not happening now, like, you know, if we're looking at the current trends, uh, and I know, Jazz, you you very kindly posted that for us, um, the current trend of property investors buying property right now is only hovering around 20 to 25%. But in the past, when we look at back in about 2015, we've had about 45% of property investors activity at that point in time. So that's not to say that it won't happen again here, um, and because, you know, when we got cheap money and when investors see, wow, you know, property is rising as fast as shares of Bitcoin nowadays, obviously they're very tempted to jump into the market as well. So chances are we may start seeing some of the investor activities to increase. And on that basis, and gents, I think this is a question that I'll direct to both of you. Um, do you think that we will follow New Zealand's path to scraping the gearing at one point in time? So... I definitely think we will see us heading in that direction at some point. Right now, I think we did discuss this last week, the demand that we are seeing in the market is very legit, which is owner-occupiers and first-home buyers trying to enter into the market or upgrade, downgrade kind of situation or relocation. Uh, But the investor activity the chart that you were just looking at, David, before is at its all-time low, which is at about 20, 25% as far as this chart goes back to, which is 2013. So when you just look at that one chart and you know the immigration numbers are almost zero, I think we're definitely going to see an uptick in the investor activity at some point in year or two. And when that happens, that's when we will see uh, the regulators jumping in and doing things that require uh, that that will help put control uh, or tap on the on the price growth essentially. Do you think they'll? Do you think they will be the regulators will be looking at removing negative gearing or they'll do other levers? Though? I think it will be other levers. A negative okay. gearing is a very hotly debated topic already in Australia. We saw that in the last few years. I don't think they'll be able to scrap that that easily but negative gearing is not the only way you can control the demand in the market there's lots lots of other ways uh, i think they'll go down different routes which is more of 
just put uh, high LVR ratios, which is what we discussed last time as well, or uh, uh, increase the interest rates kind of thing, or assessment criteria, criteria, change the assessment criteria for the investors to slow it down. There's heaps of ways you can slow down the market if you really want to, or you can put a total pause, right? I don't think negative gearing is the right one for Australia. So, so first, it's just I got so many things to say on this. The first things on negative gearing. So I don't. I kind of echo what Jazz said. It's a hot button topic in Australia. We just had an election in two thousand and nineteen, which where negative gearing was one of the main election topics. And I think I don't think the Labor Party would would try to remove it again, um, assuming it's it's a Labor Party thing. So no, I think I think negative gearing is safe as a concept. What I would say, however, is that when interest rates are zero and there's less and less and less to deduct, negative gearing is irrelevant when interest rates are this low. So all of these people in Sydney and Melbourne who owned, quote, negative geared properties, as in properties that they were making losses on a couple of years ago, all of those properties are cash flow positive now. So, so negative gearing is going to be an irrelevant um, election topic and I don't think they're going to bother taking it away, but I don't think they, they need to because interest rates are so low and everyone's cash flow positive now within reason. So I don't think they'll do it. Um, the other thing is around the 40% of investors um, in, in New Zealand compared to about 20% in Australia. It's true that in Australia it's, you know, it's first home buyers, but, you know, I kind of think when we compare countries, it depends on what the tax system is and what the incentive structure is over there. So in Australia, we have a lot of first-home buyers because we pay people to be first-home buyers. We have a government program for that. In New Zealand, I just don't know the market well enough, but they may or may not have a first-home buyer scheme, in which case people sort of genuinely slot into which category they are, first-home buyer, investor, and so on. But in Australia, we pay people to be first-home buyers, and so we get a lot of first home buyers. Um, now, these people buying are probably going to become investors or maybe they're really investors, but they don't want to, you know, they want to get the grants. So I don't know if the investor category is as low as we say it is because I think we're paying people to be first home buyers. But my overall thing is, you know, really bothers me. <laughs> it's rant time, people. This this is when, uh, this is what people tune in for. Um, like, it really bothers me that they would, regulate or crack down on a bubble that they created. I mean, you know, New Zealand, the New Zealand government, like the Australian government, like the US government and all governments around the world, um, had a policy of inflation when COVID hit. So when COVID hit, they, they bring out the bazookas and they do stimulus and they lower interest rates. And of course, you're going to get an asset bubble. It's designed to have an asset bubble. So don't blame the patient. It's like, um, you know, if, if, you're, if you've got a policy of asset bubbles and you get an asset bubble, it's like blaming the thermometer when you get a cold. So if, if they're really not happy about real estate asset bubbles, then stop blowing up real estate asset bubbles. Um, rather than punishing the investors who, who took all the cues and did exactly what they were told to do, which is go out and buy real estate and go out and buy stuff, they should just take it on the chin or change the policy settings. Jazz. So I agree with your rant and I, I, <laughs> uh, I feel you over there. But also, John, something that you mentioned last week um, in Weekly Wrap was it's a default and mm -hmm. we are trying to 
handle the default as elegantly as possible. Either, either we just let the building fall apart, free fall, and everyone dies, or we try and rescue as many people as we can out of the building before it falls apart, right? So, yes, the bubble has been created, and yes, the bubble has been created by them, but the problem is the boomers, right? So we've got boomers. There's about 10,000. We have discussed that number before, unless it's increased or decreased, whatever it is, but close to that. Retiring every every day kind of situation in America. And I don't know what the number is in Australia. Europe is about the same. And where is their wealth parked? What is their store of value? It's the real estate. It's the holiday houses, right? So when those many people are retiring, all of a sudden, if you collapse the bubble or if you let the bubble pop, those retirees are going to be dependent upon who is the government, right? All of a sudden, they don't have money. Or the other possibility is that we'll have a chaos, total chaos, if they cannot rely on the governments, right? So if that's true, then the only way to handle it is basically keep inflating it, uh, keep the debt inflating away. Think about it. 10 years ago, when you bought a property, was worth 300k today if you have to get a 300k loan for the same property you'll be laughing you'll be saying that's dirt cheap why is that dirt cheap the whole reason is because inflation has kicked into gear right salaries have gone up all that stuff right so if you think all that uh that's the only way and what that's going to do is a collapse of currency so it all goes back into the same ties back into the same knot which is uh, something is something's got to give up, and in this case, basically, it will be the currencies, which uh, over the last hundred years have lost ninety-five or ninety-nine percent of their value already. What you used to buy ten years ago for your hundred bucks uh, doesn't buy you the same amount anymore. Coffee cup ten years ago was two dollars, maybe today it's four, so it's doubled. Yeah, it's all yeah. inflation. Hundred percent, but it's not the citizens that are debauching the currency. It's the the governments themselves. Mm. Um, citizens can't debauch the currency that they don't themselves issue. So, you know, uh, the big the big kind of problem. I mean, if we take a step back, it's that in the nineteen seventies we all started voting ourselves goodies, uh, in part because we went off gold standards back then. But we started uh, introducing welfare that we hadn't uh, done in the past. Um, and, uh, and we essentially started going into deficits and then we started becoming numb to deficits. So the central banks had to become more activist in the 80s, 90s and noughties to pay for the, the deficits, the permanent deficits of what was a growing welfare state. Um, those, that, that, that central bank intervention to fund the government also led to other asset bubbles. So you'll see the economy was relatively stable from, let's say, 1900, besides the wars, up to about 1970. And then if you look at 1970, all the markets started going haywire. And it's because central banks started to intervene to fund these government debts. Now we're getting to the end of that process because our demographics are globally horrible. So Europeans and Japanese and Russians and Australians and Americans, we're not having any babies anymore, so we can't fund this anymore. So the only person, the only entity left to fund all this largesse is the central banks. We used to pretend that we had enough taxpayers for this, but now all we've got are central banks. So look, it's demographics, it's all this sort of stuff. Um, 
And but we are we've got to be at the end game. I mean, this can't go on forever. Uh, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm just yeah, I'm blaming governments for buying votes, doing all that sort of stuff. So and, and just to add on to that, there was an article that we discussed in one of the previous episodes, which was Michael Burry talking about hyperinflation, right? Mm. Um, it all it all ties back into the same thing when um, person like Michael Burry uh, from famous Big Short comes and says that there's hyperinflation on its way. Um, and then all of a sudden, likes of SEC, which is the regulators in the US, goes and pay, pay him a visit. You just need to watch the space a little bit more closely. Things are changing. Yeah. Things are changing fast. Uh, there's a reason all the central banks are trying their digital currencies. There's a reason all these speculative cryptocurrencies are there. There's a reason uh, we are seeing what we are seeing in the market currently. So you just need to listen a little bit more to the right people, I guess. Spark your fire, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> nice plug, <luck>, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no, that's uh, okay. No, that's really good points, mate. But, um, yeah, so it will be interesting to see. Look, uh, but I, I tend to agree with you guys. I think maybe the gearing in a such low rate environment is probably not as um, as important as what it used to be back when we had about four percent, five percent type of interest rates, where everyone's taking their gearing in, in places. But um, yeah, that's uh, that, that's something to watch because obviously the interest rate will go back up at some point in time as well. Now, we don't know how long that will be. And speaking of interest rates, yes, CBA has actually raised their fixed rate, fixed term interest rates this week. Um, and, and that was a full year. I think beforehand they were on a 1.98 and now they raise it back to about 2 point something. And we know that from the past, um, it's usually the fixed rate, the fixed term interest rates usually indicator of whether they think that the interest rate is going to go back up. It's a bit of indication, personally, for me. So what that means is they actually anticipate that maybe in four or five years' time, the RBA cash rate will likely to go back up to how much? We don't know. But it's not going to stay as low as what they used to think. Or you say, But the other part, Jess, I'll come back to you soon. The other part is potentially um, that the, um, uh, the 10-year Treasury bond has increased as well and that potentially because that that i think that just basically says that the um the funding or in the longer term the funding source is going to be much more expensive so they potentially potentially they might be preparing people for that so we expect that our funding source is going to be a lot more expensive than what we get now in about four years time and therefore we are going to have to try to plan for that so that's my thoughts jazz so just on the interest rates, uh, that the rise that we have seen in the four-year fixed interest rate, that yep. marries up with John's thoughts. In fact, all of us are on the same page with that, that the property, this property cycle that we are looking at um, will end towards 2023 kind of thing, right? And that's where you will start to see the rates spike up. And hence, this marries up directly with what the banks are doing uh, that's when they are seeing that this cycle will, will end and regular, regulators will step in uh, to push the rates upward, which is RBA in this case. And once they push the rate upward, the banks will have to obviously adjust. That is telling you very clearly, or uh, that's giving you a very close estimate of when, when, do you see, when do you think the property 
cycle will end or top out? Well, they're going to have to regulate rather than raise interest rates. And the reason for that is they they would bankrupt their biggest customer, the federal government, if they put interest rates up. So they're not trying to, they're not, interest rates aren't this low so that Jazz, David and John can buy real estate. The interest rates are this low because the federal government's bankrupt without interest rates this low, particularly in the US and Europe. Um, so they, they're not going to raise interest rates. They'll definitely regulate Um and, yeah, I agree, like, this, this has to run a bit longer. It has to run because of the managing of the default and all that sort of thing. Um, but, like, the, you know, as, as your currency loses value, everyone thinks you lead, it leads to higher asset prices, and it does, but it also leads to chaos. Like, it, it's, what we're seeing around the world is far more chaotic, and it's actually a reflection of a, a chaotic um, financial system, a chaotic currency um, people are, you know, governments are trying to realign themselves around the world and consumers are trying to make decisions based on their money not being worth the same. And, and no one calls it what it is, but it's just kind of a gut instinct that we have that, you know, people won't say that, oh, this all this inflation, but what they'll say is I need to buy a house now, otherwise I won't be able to afford it in, in, a tw- in 12 months. And uh, FOMO was just another way of saying there's currency depreciation out there. And you just, better... look at, just look at the things that are happening in the market. We have discussed GameStop. We have discussed Hertz Story. We have discussed real estate shooting up in prices. We have discussed Bitcoin going crazy or the cryptos in general. We have discussed commodities that this is going to be a year of commodities. And all. all of that is just pointing to one thing, inflation, high inflation. And when does the cycle end? Somewhere close to when... Uh, the, uh, uh, when when the banks are planning to lift the interest rates, which is 2023, 2023, maybe 2024, somewhere close to that, right? Yeah. So that's how they're adjusting their policies as well. That this cycle is going to run for another two, three years, um, and this is just the start of it. All of this is just pointing to the same thing. What I think they'll do is I think they'll talk interest rates up but not actually do it. So you, you'll get to it. Do, do you remember the taper tantrum when a couple of years ago, I think 2016, 17, they started talking about increasing rates, but they never really did it. Uh, they, they started talking about ending QE, but they never really, I mean, they did a little bit, but what they're going to do is they're going to talk interest rates up without actually putting interest rates up, and that'll be their way of slowing the market down. Yeah, creating a bit of fear, basically, yeah. in that. So people to be cautious rather than go, do you know what? We are going to, you know, we're, we're going to leave it at this low. Because that's why everyone's confident, right? Go, when 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 Philip Lowe from RBA uh, basically made that kind of announcement, go, interest rate's going to stay as low as three years. Everyone's panicking. Everyone's trying to get in because that's kind of some kind of assurances. But, yeah, you're right. As soon as some sort of uh, changes in the in a kind of public announcement, I reckon they will be that will be impacting the confidence investor confidence to a certain level. I think I'm not trying to give Spark Your Fire a plug over here, but I think if you were just listening to the podcast last year kind of thing, uh, and if you pulled the trigger or ex- executed on, on, on your strategy by listening to the podcast, which is real estate, taking a punt on crypto, commodities, uh, yes, gold didn't shine. Well, it did last year, sorry. Uh, this year it has um, slowed down a bit. Uh, all of those have played out. And all, what, what, we, what are we doing? We are not doing anything magical over here. We're just looking at what the macro environment is. What, what, what is in favor due to the macro environment or the macro landscape, right? Mm. And it's 
just telling you that inflation is in favor. Mm. It's a good plug. And coming back to coming back to John, your point about the chaos. I think I've read somewhere this week that some of the European countries have already seen a spike in terms of the food prices and all that kind of stuff. So people are struggling in some of those cities uh, to be able to even keep up. So that's definitely a starting indication on the inflation or the amount of money that's been floating around this current monetary system. Yeah, I mean the latest, that. the latest news is also that you know there was a a tanker in the Suez Canal that went sideways and was blocking about $400 billion worth of trade. That, that's that's a little piece of chaos, right? I also heard this morning that Iran bombed an Israeli cargo ship or something like that. Chaos, right? So there's a couple of potential reasons for that, but, um, uh, I mean, the, 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 the main – here's an interesting hypothesis, actually. I heard this on a, on a different podcast, and it was that um, – the, if you can imagine all the money being printed, all the inflation that gets printed is like a pressure cooker and it's looking for a release valve. So the money has to get out somewhere and someplace, but you don't want it to show up in inflation. So this guy's hypothesis is that um, the, the governments or the central banks are releasing the inflation into assets that don't get picked up by the CPI. So they're trying to release it in particular, he says, into the oil price. So uh, you've got all these, you know, Suez Canal problems and Iran, this and Iran, that. May or may not be true or they may not even be problematic. But what it does is it does release inflation into the, the, the oil price and the oil price doesn't get measured by the CPI. So you could say, you know, the oil price could go to $200, which I, I think I said last year that it would eventually, and it not get picked up by the CPI. There are two other asset categories that, if the inflation goes into it, it won't get picked up by the, the CPI. One is um, real estate. If real estate goes uh, goes up, CPI is not going to count it. And the other thing, uh, David, to your point, is food prices. If if inflation gets released into food prices, the CPI won't pick that up either. So um, I thought that was an interesting hypothesis. I have to mull it over, but um, the oil price was interesting this week. And it all kind of feeds into this, how do you get the inflation out of the system without it... Um, being hyperinflation, and you release it into real estate, oil, and food. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you guys can talk and uh, can dedicate a specific episode after on, on this discussion topic. I reckon this uh, <laughs> this guy's hypothesis does sound interesting to a certain extent. So you know, I think worth exploring and uh, keep keep us posted, uh, John. That's uh, great insights. Um, what's been happening around property this uh, this week, John? You've got some data for us. Yeah, look, uh, look, fantastic. I mean, the, the, the music continues, right? It's uh, been a fantastic couple of weeks. Um, in, um, I mean, the listings are all up um, and there were a couple of uh, major markets where the uh, clearance rates are over 90%. So the clearance rate in Sydney was 92%. Um, what that means for Sydney is it's been over 90% three times in the last four weeks and two months consecutively over 90%. So that's that's fairly unprecedented. In Melbourne, it was 82%, but they had uh, over 1,000 auctions, so uh, very high volumes. Brisbane, 84%, Adelaide, 91%, and Canberra, 97 Smaller markets bounce around a little bit, but um, very consistently high. The volumes are up. And what's interesting is uh, I think also that uh, this coming weekend, as in tomorrow, the it'll be the third highest uh, number of auctions 
since uh, 2008, so in the last what, 13 years, it's the third highest weekend. So it'll be interesting to see if the clearance rates keep up in such a high-volume weekend. But real estate's going gangbusters. I know you guys have some stories. Um, I'll, I'll make some remarks at the end because I think there's some other interesting things happening. But uh, what are you guys seeing in your markets? Uh, look, Melbourne's pretty hot, mate. I can tell that firsthand. Uh, speaking to the locals over here and looking at some of the properties that are for sale, I think uh, being a little bit selective over here, but the areas that I have looked at, uh, we've already seen more than 10% growth over there. Yeah. So easy more than 10%. Uh, somewhere between in the vicinity of 10 to 20%, depending upon the type of the property, where it is, uh, the suburb. And uh, yeah, the horse is running fast. That is a lot of growth. I hope it won't continue at that pace this year. Because if it does, then <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. But it's, uh, all, all comes to mind is uh, just some scary thoughts. So I hope it cools down a bit because that's a lot of growth that we have seen within uh, the last three to four months. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's pretty crazy at the moment. Like I'm sure, John, you've been seeing this on the ground as well, you know, across the whole Sydney market. It's pretty much the same as what you're saying, Jazz. On average, 10 to 15% would be such a short spurt of growth uh, in, in time. Um, and, you know, because I, I monitor the, obviously, the northern part, you know, the, uh, between Epping to Hornsby, that sort of, um, that sort of the area. Um, it's quite common to see, as I mentioned before, auctions uh, going, you know, price guide around 1.3, 1.4, ended up selling 1.6, 1.7, about 15, 20% on top of what they originally advertised. Just the amount of stock available, uh, and this is talking about detached housing, by the way. Um, the Yeah, so houses at the moment are absolutely going gangbusters, whereas townhouses, Units, they are at very different speeds. So townhouses wouldn't have achieved a similar type, but they would have gone up too, but not to this crazy level. Um, and uh, and units as well, um, slowly, slowly catching up. But I think uh, the interesting thing is, you know, like you said, how long can this run? Um, this is definitely not sustainable, and we're probably seeing a short spurt of growth in should, which should have probably, in ideal world, should have happened across six months or 12 months. Uh, but just all the pent-up demand last year has now caused us to, to, to come out in one go. Um, and, you know, at one point in time, and I'm, I think people are starting to see this, um, the spread between the houses and units are just getting too big. Um, you know, in certain suburbs, it's going to be over one meal, two meal, that kind of stuff, when the people will trigger people to think, well, we're being priced out. But units are still affordable, so should we look at units instead? So that was one of the interesting thoughts that's in my mind because I know that, um, you know, obviously a number of customers being in the game, in the auction game, try to, you know, swing their bat every weekend, constantly getting outbid, constantly getting frustrated. Um, and if they're investors, they go, well, do you know what? Just like what Warren Buffett said, you gotta, you got to kind of do, you know, be fearful when others are greedy, be greedy when others are fearful. What are other people not looking at the moment? If everyone's looking at houses, does that mean units potentially could be, potentially, potentially, I'm not saying that everyone should be looking at units, but could units be a better investment in the current environment? You've got to go the opposite way. So that's my thoughts of the week, basically. I think you made a very good point just over there, David. Uh, units and apartments that are, uh, out of demand or no demand at all for apartments. Maybe you can some find some good uh, value over there 
but obviously you have to be very careful because uh, the demand is changing the uh, the way we used to do things is changing with technology so as long as you keep all those things in mind and then try and execute on one of these strategies which is uh, buying an apartment or a unit uh, as long as it can be leased and you're getting it uh, in a hot market under the market price that's a winning strategy if you can execute it properly the hard part is the ex- execution of it yeah i'm i'm going to i'm going to take dave's advice and be a bit of a contrarian i i'm actually um i think i'm just looking at the clearance rates and units aren't as soft as people think i, I think we haven't seen it quite in the price data, but the clearance rates for units uh, were over 90%. They were 92%, and houses are at 92% as well. So there are two things I think that are kind of starting to level out at the moment. One is I think um, partly because the stretch between units and houses can't really get any bigger than they are at the moment, but I think that's going to start to correct, and I think now's the time that starts to correct, um, and I think we can already see it. So the, the demand for the demand is being swung back into units, and I think keep an eye on this for the next couple of months but I think that units will be um, uh, will be hot. I also think that the tree change, we're talking about the tree change a couple of months ago, I think that that is slowing right down. So I think regionals, it's going to swing back to capitals. Um, uh, so I think that's the other trend that is in the process of reversing. But one other thing and is that I actually think that the market takes a bit of a breather for about a month or so. So I think that the March data is going to come out, it's going to be off the charts, and we'll talk about that next week. But I actually think the market's overshot a little bit. And you know I'm a big kind of four- to five-year bull on real estate. But I I think at this point in time it's just going to take a deep breath. The reason I say that is because um, I'm looking at a core logic chart which tracks the clearance rates to prices, and they correlate very closely. Um, what tends to happen is the um, prices follow the clearance rate. So when the clearance rates spike up, prices spike up. And prices have just actually overshot the clearance rates. So I actually think that we might see a bit of a relaxation in the intensity of the demand for a month or two, and then it'll resume. Um, but we'll, we'll, we'll see. I could be <laughs> I mean, it's too micro to predict, but I actually think that it'll take a bit of a deep breath. won't go down, but it'll just go sideways for a bit. Here we go. John's going to add 10 apartments to his portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) I would if I could. I would if I could. Uh, All right, gents. Anything else? It's been an hour. We have been ranting. Uh, (laughs) John started it. (laughs) And now everybody can't stop. (laughs) That's good. I did it again. again. (laughs) Anything else that we want to add before we wrap this up? No, that's enough for this week, I reckon chat awesome um good chat boys was good fun to talk about all the stuff that we have uh, like always there's a lot of activity in the market there's lots of ways to make money you just pick your own uh, after listening to all this stuff uh, none of this is financial advice stay safe stay safe and we'll see you guys next week cheers john jazz and david bye